0: Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app.
1: You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 274 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a great conversation with writer susan campbell bartoletti and we discuss her young days as a voracious reader reading so many books that the librarian at her school ran out we talk about writing being a teacher what is the measure of success protests worldviews. so many awesome Insights coming from writer Susan Campbell Bartoletti today on the program. We also have an EW essay entitled Wonderful, and an excerpt from S.E. Hinton's classic novel The Outsiders, as well as a poem titled Remedy. And all of this, of course, will be infused with the energy of several great tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 274 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours.
2: of my dates than now.
1: Wonderland. I live in this bubble that has been constructed in an oh-so-subtle manner. On occasion of clarity or perhaps delusional insanity, I can see a way out of it. I notice light from outside of it finding its way in. How has my bubble come about? Where did this begin? I suppose it is a bit random in its context, though two institutional efforts from the first moments of breath outside my mother have had major effect on my sense of place, promise, and the platitudes. Yes. And, of course, we should also discuss my attitudes as well. I mean, context, content, Of this bubble is the substance in which I weighed literally and figuratively day to day. Though, too, one's outlook, sentiment, soulfulness, surely makes a significant difference. I have had many, and still do have many, positive voices, people, and ideas seeping in. But being raised in a rust-belt town in the late 20th and early 21st centuries USA style, certainly does feed a sort of nihilistic despair coupled with a bipolar-like sense of instant gratification and emptiness. Smoke, alcohol, eat fat, salt, and sugar, buy things. Everyone around me has a leaf blower, and most go to church every Sunday, constantly blowing their dirt and detritus into the seemingly sanctimonious ether and my front yard. I am working to break through, despite the noise, my noise, and these ritualistic ruts of habit, sort of like you in your milieu, perhaps, down another hole chasing a rabbit into wonderland. What truly is this, and how to accurately understand?
3: About 25 years from now When we've all grown old From a wonderin' how Oh, we'll all sit down at the city dump And talk about the good old days Oh, you'll pass a joint And I'll pass a wine And anything good from down the line A lot of good things went down one time Back in the new days yeah, the good old Good people have done, gone, gone That's my life when I sing this song about back in the good days Sometimes we get to thinking that we're almost done And there ain't nothing left that we can figure out And I guess it must have seemed a lot more like that Back in the good days But when you gotta go, you gotta go there's always somebody, don't you know, I hang around to say well, I told you so, back in the good days. Yeah, the good old days are past and gone, a lot of good people gone done, done, Now oh, That's my life oh, when I assume this song about. around When the old guitar starts to make that sound, a lot of good things went down, down, down. Back in the good days, we's in love with the people that we hadn't even met out for anything we could get. Oh, we did it then and we'll do it yet. Back in the good days, yeah, the good old days.
1: Hello. Hi. Susan Campo Bartoletti.
4: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
4: Oh, well, I'm happy to be here.
1: And uh, I'd like to start by letting everybody know she is, Susan, is a writer. And uh, she's written some highly regarded children's books, among other things. And uh, we're going to give you a little background information before we get started with our conversation. So uh, here we go. And Susan wrote this, basically. I just uh, changed the the uh, angle. Susan writes poetry, short stories, picture books, novels, and nonfiction for young writers, or readers, excuse me. She has always loved to read, but had no idea she was going to be a writer when she grew up. When Susan was in seventh grade, the middle school librarian told her she had nothing left for her to read. You have read the library out, she said. As much as Susan loved to read, she liked art class best, but in college she filled her schedule with literature classes. She took a creative writing class and wrote short stories and poetry for the first time. She interned as a journalist at a local newspaper. These experiences fueled a desire to write her own story someday. By 1997, Susan had published short stories, picture books, and her first nonfiction book. She had a novel and another nonfiction book under contract. The time had come for a difficult decision, either teach full-time or write full-time. She had already had one career that she loved, teaching. Was it time for another? Could Susan make it as a full-time writer? Leap, and the net will appear, a friend told her, and she did, and it did. Ladies and gentlemen, Susan Bardoletti on the program.
4: Thank you. It's good to be here today.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful day. We're both pretty much in the same physical, right?
4: Yes, yes, mostly rain and <laughs> gray skies.
1: Too much, yeah. So this is pleasant right now. Yeah. Um, Well, I want to get right in uh, to some of, I guess, what early on inspired you. When you were a kid, when you were a child, what books did you read?
4: Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I read just about anything and everything. I was that kid who would read the back of the toothpaste tube if there was nothing else in the bathroom. I would read the back of the cereal boxes while I was eating breakfast, um, I always enjoyed reading the yellow pages in the telephone book and all the other interesting information that um, one used to be able to find in that thing called a telephone book. Um, I also enjoyed reading, um, gosh, um, like I loved books like Harriet the Spy. And I think that is the book that encouraged me to become a journal keeper. Um, I loved the, as a kid, I loved the little house on the prairie series. I loved, um, the five little peppers and how they grew. But I also, um, remember really liking, um, Truman Capote's in cold blood when I was in sixth grade. Wow. <laughs> and my mother had checked it out from the library and left it there and, you know, it looked pretty interesting. So I picked that up and, um, I, I read that, um, and that didn't scar and, and, you. No, in fact, I, I just remember being. I still like watch, you know, reading crime stories and watching programs like Forty Eight Hours, on on television. Uh, I also uh, loved uh, um, a book that I read so many times. I literally memorized it, and that was Eric Siegel's Love Story.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's kind of embarrassing to admit, but uh, my friends would come to the house and they would feed me lines from the book, and I could give them. I would give them the next line. It became my little party trick. <laughs> um, I loved S.E. Hinton's *The Outsiders*. Um, That's a great. You one. know, yes, and so I mean, it was. I I had, and I still have absolutely no taste when it comes to reading. <laughs> because i just loved to read so much that i like i read anything and everything that i could i could get my hands on
1: yeah i mean your your school librarian she ran out
4: yes she did run out i remember her well telling me that day there was nothing left
1: <laughs> and, and how old were you then
4: that was 8th grade
1: that's amazing that's pretty impressive yeah, yeah and and how do you think all of these books uh because to me it's always uh, interesting and important, I think. Uh, how a, a young person's worldview is is established. How do you mm-hmm. think all of this reading and the books that you read helped to to affect or establish your worldview?
4: Oh well, it certainly helped to establish a worldview of my own, um, rather than you know just um, you know repeating or indo- being you know indoctrinated in the worldview of the adults around me. It, it really helped me uh, figure out. Where who I was and, and what I wanted to be um, You know, I was also very closely watching you know the demonstrations and and the protests the the rebellions and the revolutions of the 60s as I was growing up and So I, one day I can remember I was I, it was it was the spring of 1968 and I was sitting at the family uh, the the kitchen table, and I said to my mother, gee, I don't know if I want to go to college to learn or to demonstrate. <laughs> I still remember the sound of her chin hitting the table. <laughs> <laughs> but these are the things, I mean, I loved, um, you know, reading about the Black Panthers and Angela Davis and, you know, just anything in the newspaper and the magazines that came into the house. And they... and. You know, they helped to broaden me at a time when, you know, my world was very small.
1: Hey, you were born and raised in, uh, in Pennsylvania?
4: Yes, um, lived in Pennsylvania uh, my entire life, and, um, and, and actually in northeastern Pennsylvania for all but about two months of my life.
1: Yeah, so uh, you definitely have roots and a solid sense of place, I'd imagine.
4: yes. I do. In fact, um, you know, it's it has helped um, me figure out what I want, the stories I wanted to tell as well. Um, you know, in the area, I live in um, the hard coal county area, and my 1st nonfiction book was about um, child labor in the anthracite coal mines at a time when one out of every four mine workers was a boy, ages seven to sixteen. Um, and that, you know, that book was called grow is called growing up in coal country. And it just, you know, it, it, um, it's a book, it's a book that I would have written. Um, I was going to write no matter what. It's a book that at first, when I started the research and the writing, I thought perhaps a, a small press in Pennsylvania might be interested in publishing it. But I, I, it turns out that it was, you know, one of the top, um, publishers uh houghton mifflin that published that book and it found an audience it has found an audience right across the country um it's it's amazing how many people read that and and have a connection in some way to this area
1: and when did you write that
4: oh that book was published um i think it was published in 96 or maybe 95 (laughs) Uh, and so that was, you know, I was writing that around 1992 to 1994.
1: And then from there, that was your, your first, uh, piece of nonfiction. Yes. And you, uh, from there moved on to, to, uh, children's books
4: yeah, well, that was a that was a book uh, for children. Oh, that
1: was a book for children.
4: Yes, yes. In fact, you know, I believe that a book for young readers needs to be uh, just as good, if not better than any, book for adults. And I um and so that is a book that I would say sells equally to uh, young readers as well as adults. when When the book came out, I, I can remember, One of my first signings, um, a man, an elderly man, perhaps in his late 70s or early 80s, came up to me and he was holding the book and he said, this is the best book I've ever read on this subject.
1: Mm, That's wonderful.
4: And yeah, one of the reasons that was very meaningful to me is because a lot of these young people, these boys that worked in the mines, they left um, with perhaps only in some cases, they left school when they were twelve. had they had a sixth grade education and that was all. And so I don't know what his reading level was, but it was certainly a book that was accessible to him. And it spoke to him. And you know that's the thing when you're writing. you know you want that personal and emotional connection. Um,
1: do you think and, he, he I'm sorry, do you think he was a breaker boy?
4: Oh, he had worked in the mines, yes.
1: Yeah, so yes. Oh, oh wow. Mm -hmm. So that must have really uh, struck a chord.
4: Mm -hmm. And then uh, another person I I, um, interviewed for the book. I I sought interviews for this book. I I put out notices in uh, church. um, um, You know, that thing you get when you walk into the church. I can't remember my right. The bulletin, yes, that's it. (laughs) Uh, I put out notices in the various church bulletins because, of course, many of our churches are still ethnic here. And I put in uh, letters in community newspapers just trying to find um, men who would be willing to talk to me about their experiences. And the oldest man I found was 94. And um, one, uh, I didn't hear from this one man, I actually heard from his daughter who said, would you, uh, we'd be, we'd love to have you interview our dad because we're so tired of hearing the same stories over and over again. <laughs> and and guess who was in line and bought three copies of that book that day?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that, yeah. yeah it, well, you know, you you help people share their story and and uh, maybe deal with some some things that were pretty poignant in their past, and I'm sure they're appreciative to to a great extent. Yeah. And it's good for for uh, our for the descendants mm-hmm. of, of those folks to know those stories.
4: Well, you know, one of the. Um, Probably the biggest lessons I learned, because I learned from every book that I write, uh, was that kids will be kids whenever they can get away with it, and that despite the fact that these boys worked minimum 10-hour days, six days a week for negligible pay, um, they found ways to be mischievous, they found ways to play, they found ways to get even with the boss they didn't like. (laughs) Excellent. And, you know, as a former eighth grade teacher, I thought, wow, I know, I know what the the kids sitting in front of me, like, I know that they're getting away with stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, and that brings us to the teaching aspect of your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are a writer, you uh, are a teacher. And as our our biography suggested, there was a point in time where you, you, you believed you needed to make a choice.
4: I did, yes. I was burning the candle at both ends. I was, you know, I would, um, I, I loved teaching. It's the absolute hardest job that I have ever loved. And I would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and I would write from 4 until 7. And then I would go out the door to teach. And what I learned was that I could write for 3 hours in the morning and then go out the door to teach, 188th graders. Yeah. But I could not come home and then write. Because, you know, at the end of the school day, that bell rings and your brain turns to oatmeal mush. Um, and so, you know, I that's what I was doing for for a few years. And I was having um, a lot of success with um, publication. And I found myself wanting more time and more time and more time. And so um I tell people, I you know, I, we had a family meeting, and I said, we're going to downsize, and one of you kids has just got to go. <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> we're, we're sending you to the neighbors. <laughs> the Hupshmans are going to raise you.
4: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, But anyway, so, yes, that's when I realized that um, it, was time, it was time to make a decision. And it was a very hard decision, but as my friends told me, you know, leap and the net will appear, and it sure did.
1: Yeah, that's a huge decision. I, you know, it's, we all know how hard it is to make it as a writer, no, ma- no matter how good you are a lot of times. I mean, there are a lot of great writers out there you never hear about. Uh, so you you took that leap. and So how old were you when you left teaching?
4: Well, let's see. It was 1998, so I was 40. Yeah, that's
1: I had been, young. Yeah, I'd been
4: teaching for for 18 years. Well, that's when I resigned. I took a year off without pay. So the year without pay, I can technically say I, I left at 38, <laughs> <laughs> and then I officially resigned. So, yeah, I was 39 when I officially resigned. So, yeah. The, and
1: The eternal but, age of, I was going to say the eternal age of Jack Benny.
4: Yes. Uh, <laughs> My daughter and I are the same age. I don't know how it happened. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that that's, yeah, that's young. To, to mm-hmm. then, but it's good. I mean, you you have energy, you have time now to embark on this new career, but financially, I suppose mm-hmm. uh, it was difficult, and not just, yeah. maybe a prospect uh, of of not maybe making enough money to run your household. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you
4: know, I'll I'll speak to that. Um, in my that year, uh, the year I was just had decided that was it. My my son was in ninth grade, and our. Um, The teachers union was going through contract negotiations and the weekly community paper published all of the teachers salaries in the paper. And uh, my son came to me and he showed me my salary and he knew I was quitting. And he said, mom, this makes absolutely no economic sense. (laughs) (laughs) Ninth grader. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it did. Um, I don't define success by um, the amount of money I earn. But I did, when I was leaving the classroom, I did go ahead and make and two um, definitions for what success would mean to me. Um, success to me would mean having a body of work that stood for something. And I numbered that at 10 books. And this year, my 20th book will be published.
1: Oh, congratulations.
4: Thank you. And um, the second um, definition was one uh, for salary. I said, if I can make just half the amount of money that I make as a teacher, um, then I know that I have, you know. Uh, then I will also consider that a success. And actually, that never happened. I've never made just half the amount of money I did. I, I, my books do very well, but um, so it all worked out.
1: <laughs> so you're making more than half.
4: Oh yes. <laughs>
1: That's fantastic.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good call. Back when you were yeah. 39. <laughs> You are listening to Troubadours and Rock-On-Tours with EW Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn.
4: Yeah, um, but I did do, I, I do believe in safety nets. So when I left the classroom, I had a safety net in place. I had applied to the doctoral program at Binghamton University, and I was accepted, and I had won a full ride with, that came with a stipend. And so I um, pursued my my PhD and I earned that in English. And all the while that I was now driving the 150 mile round trip commute (laughs) to Binghamton, um, I was also writing. And so I then added an extra shift to my day. I would get up and write, I would go to bed early, like say eight o'clock at night and I would write, I would sleep till two and then I would get up and from two until six I would work on my book. And then, from um, six until whenever I had to leave the house, I would work on um, my students' work because I also taught a class at Binghamton. It was part of the the tuition scholarship. And then, while I was at Binghamton, I would do all the research I needed to do for my papers and my dissertation.
1: Wow, wow.
4: So, (laughs) I think I could do that today, but it worked out 20 years ago.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, if, if you really want something and you really love something, I guess you, you, the potential to be able to do it is there. Mm-hmm. Though, you know, being uh, in your 40s, that's still a good age to have all that energy and vigor. Uh, well,
4: yeah, I think the 40s. I've talked to women about this who are older, and uh, I will say, what was your best decade? And, and many of them will say the 40s. Because their children were independent. They were, if not out of the house, they were, you know, doing their own thing. And you suddenly have all this extra milk in the refrigerator and not as much wash to do. And you get all this energy.
1: (laughs) And, you know, when you got, is that where you met our associate producer, Dr. Pafis, when you were up at? uh, No,
4: no. He was, I think he was, uh, went, he graduated earlier than I do, did. Even though I'm quite sure he's younger than I am,
1: <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. I I think he, I have no idea what his age is. I'm not sure. Yeah. He sure, he keeps yeah. that a secret.
4: He's uh, a youthful sort. <laughs> he is. He
1: is. Uh, so then, uh, what would you say? You have 20 books. What would you say is your most successful book?
4: Oh, okay. Um, well, I wrote a nonfiction book called Hitler Youth. Um, Growing Up in Hitler's Shadow, and it's about the 9 million boys and girls who joined the Hitler Youth Group when um, Adolf Hitler became chancellor, was appointed chancellor of Germany, and during those 12 terrible years that we call the Third Reich. Um, And in that book, uh, there is one story, a true story that I could not let go of. I, I included it in the nonfiction book, and then I decided that this boy, Helmuth Hubener, who was the youngest person on death row in Nazi Germany, um, I decided that, you know, it's almost as though, he like, I'd be washing the dishes, and he'd be talking to me, and I'd be driving the car, and I'd be having this conversation with him, and I realized that he needed his own book. And so um, I wrote it, and Scholastic published that as well, and... That book has just um, it's it's in almost every seems like it's in almost every school across the country. It's a part of the Holocaust curriculum. It's a book that you know the two books together. I do a lot of speaking engagements on the subject. And uh, so that
1: what's the title of that one?
4: Oh, the boy who dared.
1: The boy who dared. So yeah, the the book on Hitler Youth and then the boy who dared, and those two uh,
4: are I'd call them companion books. Because the one is nonfiction and the Boy Who Dared is based on a true story But I call it historical fiction because even though I have all the research and you know Like 90% or 95% of the book is 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 fact um, I needed to imagine and invent dialogue um, Based on the research and I needed to invent scenes that were based on the research but because of the invention um, that took place between, with the dialogue and, and, the, and, and those um, scenes, it is historical fiction.
1: And, and why, I mean, what's the story that is so compelling uh, about The Boy Who okay. Dared?
4: Well, when I started to research Hitler Youth, I came across, it was like one sentence, maybe two sentences about Helmuth Hübner being the youngest person on death row in Nazi Germany. And... He was sentenced to death because he had stood up to Hitler. When World War II broke out, the Nazis passed a law that made it illegal to listen to foreign news, such as the BBC. If you listened to the news, then you could be sentenced to seven years in a concentration camp. But if you told other people what you heard on the news, then you were considered a dangerous political enemy. And you would be sentenced to death. They also passed a law that made it illegal um, to criticize Adolf Hitler, the Nazis, the war, or the Nazi government. And so his Helmut's older brother brought home a shortwave radio and locked it in the closet at his grandmother's house and told his brother, don't touch it. But then Gerhard got drafted into war. And he told, and as soon as the brother left, um, Helmuth did what any other boy would do. He, you know, Jimmy had opened the closet door, took out the radio, plugged it in, and began to listen to the BBC. When he realized that the British were telling the truth about the way the war was going, and the Nazis were lying to the German people, he told his two best friends. And the three of them, um, Helmuth, Hubener, wrote up essays that summarized the news, that criticized Hitler and the other Nazis in the war. They um, Duplicated the essays and uh, scattered them on the streets of Hamburg, which was the city in which they lived, and they got caught. And so it's the story of uh, this young boy who um, stood up to Hitler. The three boys are um, are caught. They're going before the highest court in the land, and Helmuth Hubener realizes that they're being tried as adults. That the judges want to make an example out of them, and if they're found guilty, and they are guilty, that they're all going to be sentenced to death. And so he does something that saves the lives of his two friends, even though it ultimately means sacrificing his own.
1: And you're going to leave that a mystery to us?
4: I will. Okay. (laughs) I didn't even ruin the book for anyone.
1: (laughs) And and, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with Susan Campbell Bartoletti, writer, uh, teacher, I would say, historian to a certain extent, uh, especially uh, given what you just described to us, mm-hmm. hel- helping young people understand history. Given you were a, a teacher, uh, I guess you you valo- value that uh, young people have a good sense of where they come from so that they might understand mm-hmm. where they might go.
4: And make their own decisions where they might go. And may I add one more thing? Because of, I'm Of course, um, of course. It, And then I just want to, um, a brief commercial for the next book coming out in September. Uh, it's an, it's a collection of essays, a nonfiction, it's a nonfiction anthology. And for the first time I have edited. And so I've worked with my co-editor, Mark Aronson. The book is on the year 1968, a year of revolution, rebellion, and change. And we have 14 writers in this, uh, collection, uh, I wrote about um, hippies, yippies, shoot to kill daily, and the media, which is a look at Abby Hoffman's work in um, disruption during the 1968 Democratic Convention.
1: In Chicago. Yes. Yeah, and that, and give us some information, uh, contact information that people might uh, okay. access. Okay. Um,
4: Sure, I can be found. I have a website, um, and it is www.s, as in, S as in Susan, C, as in Campbell, Bartoletti.com.
1: Uh, and Bartoletti, I want to make sure we spell that right, B a r, B a r t o l e t t i.
4: That's correct.
1: Uh, so any closing thoughts, Susan?
4: Um. My goodness, I, I just am really appreciative to all the listeners out there who are um, taking in your program, and I appreciate this opportunity to, to talk about my work.
1: Oh, yeah, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure to uh, mm-hmm. to have uh, your voice as part of Troubadours and Rock On Tours mm-hmm. and your experience. And mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, if there's a, an aspiring writer or a, a teacher around 40 years old who's... Who's wondering if she should or he should take that next step? What would you say? What would you say to them?
4: Well, um, how are you going to downsize? And <laughs> who's going in your family? But um, also, um, I would I suggest to everyone that you just you keep writing, you keep sending out, and um, I I think that we're all lucky if we can have two careers that we love in our life and. I'm happy that I have one that my heart, my head, and my hands love. So, um, you know, for everyone, it's different. Uh, Not everyone would um, be able to or be willing to take the chance um, to to leap and hope and wish for that net. But um, it will appear. It does appear.
1: Thank you so much, Susan. It's a pleasure talking with you. and look forward to the new work coming out this fall.
4: All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.
1: Excerpt from The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I had only two things on my mind, Paul Newman and a ride home. I was wishing I looked like Paul Newman. He looks tough, and I don't. But I guess my own looks aren't so bad. I have light brown, almost red hair and greenish-gray eyes. I wish they were more gray because I hate most guys that have green eyes. But I have to be content with what I have. My hair is longer than a lot of boys wear theirs. Squared off in back and long at the front and sides. But I am a greaser and most of my neighborhood rarely bothers to get a haircut. Besides, I look better with long hair. I had a long walk home and no company but I usually loan it anyway for no reason except that I like to watch movies undisturbed so I can get into them and live them with the actors. When I see a movie with someone, it's kind of uncomfortable, like having someone read your book over your shoulder. I'm different that way. I mean, my second oldest brother, Soda, who was 16 going on 17, never cracks a book at all. And my oldest brother, Darryl, who we call Derry, works too long and hard to be interested in a story or drawing a picture. So I'm not like them. And nobody in our gang digs movies and books the way I do. For a while there, I thought I was the only person in the world that did. So I loaned it. Soda tries to understand, at least, which is more than Derry does, But then, Soda is different from anybody. He understands everything, almost. Like he's never hollering at me all the time the way Derry is, or treating me as if I was six instead of 14. I love Soda more than I've ever loved anyone, even mom and dad. He's always happy-go-lucky and grinning, while Derry's hard and firm and rarely grins at all. But then, Derry's gone through a lot in his 20 years, grown up too fast. Soda pop will never grow up at all. I don't know which way is the best. I'll find out one of these days. Anyway, I went on walking home thinking about the movie and then suddenly wishing I had some company. Greasers can't walk alone too much or they'll get jumped or someone will come by and scream, Greaser! Greaser! at them which doesn't make you feel too hot if you know what i mean we get jumped by the socials i'm not sure how you spell it but the abbreviation for the socials the jet set the west side rich kids it's like the term greaser which is used to class all us boys on the east side we're poorer than the socials and the middle class I reckon we're wilder too, not like the socias who jump greasers and wreck houses and throw beer blasts for kicks and get editorials in the paper for being a public disgrace one day and an asset to society the next. Greasers are almost like hoods. We steal things and drive old souped up cars and hold up gas stations and have a gang fight once in a while. I don't mean I do things like that. Derry would kill me if I got into trouble with the police. Since Mom and Dad were killed in an auto wreck, the three of us get to stay together only as long as we behave. So Soda and I stay out of trouble as much as we can, and we're careful not to get caught when we can't. I only mean that most greasers do things like that, just like we wear our hair long and dress in blue jeans and T-shirts, or leave our shirt tails out and wear leather jackets and tennis shoes or boots. I'm not saying that so-shoes or greasers are better. That's just the way things are. I could have waited to go to the movies until Dairy or Soda Pop got off work. They'd have, they would have gone with me, or driven me there, or walked along, although Soda just can't sit still long enough to enjoy a movie, and they bore Dairy to death. Derry thinks his life is enough without inspecting other people's. Or I could have gotten one of the gang to come along, one of the four boys Derry and Soda and I have grown up with and consider family. We're almost as close as brothers. When you grow up in a tight-knit neighborhood like ours, you get to know each other real well. If I had thought about it, I could have called Derry and he would have come by on his way home and picked me up. Or 2-Bit Matthews, one of our gang, would have come to get me in his car if I had asked him. But sometimes I just don't use my head. It drives my brother Derry nuts when I do stuff like that. Because I'm supposed to be smart. I make good grades and have a high IQ and everything. But I don't use my head. Besides, I like walking. (laughs) i sorry. child, my way was mild and warm, then into the swarm as I grew older. Is it myself? Is it my culture? God and economic gain will ease the pain, most believe, though might we perceive what love can truly be if we can transcend these present-day human-conceived remedies.
0: doorway, your prophets lead to wander, oh, oh, oh. you fall asleep at night with worries, the saddest morning by Love.
1: And there you have it, episode 274 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, writer Susan Campbell Bartoletti. Also, I'd like to thank S.E. Hinton, another great writer. And these musical artists Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli Arrested Development John Hartford REM Elvis The Thievery Corporation Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard too Until next week why don't you try and enjoy this one I Will Too Thanks for listening